We start a new sermon series today in 1 John. 1 John, so we'll be in the first four verses of chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Also, in our church app, there is a sermon listening guide if you wanna follow along. There's scripture printed at the top of that as well. 1 John chapter one, verses one through four. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Actress Amanda Peet appeared on the late show with Stephen Colbert one night, and she made things pretty awkward pretty quickly. Colbert was asking about her HBO show, which pretty much is about characters who go through midlife crises. So he said to her, you've got a lovely life. What do you know from the midlife crisis? Is this a stretch for you? She said, no, 44 is quite something. He said, you don't look like a personal crisis to me. What is your crisis? And she said, I fear death. He said, okay, well, keep it light. Keep it light, we all die. It's the late night talk show, keep it light, keep it light. I mean, maybe you'll go to heaven, you'll die and go to heaven. And she said, okay, that's where I need help. You're Catholic, right? I'm Jewish. He said, what do you believe? She said, I need to know what to believe in. He said, like, you mean what happens when you die? She said, yes, I don't wanna be a bag of dust. And he said, at this point, pretty uncomfortable, I, I, I don't really know. I don't know what happens. I kind of want the pearly gates and all that. To which she says, this is not inspirational. Conversation ends. There are so many misconceptions of eternal life in our culture and world. And most of the time, when eternal life is spoken of, it's spoken of as a place, or maybe an impersonal quality of life. But John, the man who wrote 1 John, also wrote the Gospel of John, who was a disciple of Jesus, defines eternal life very differently in the first three verses of his letter. He says eternal life is not primarily a place or some impersonal quality of life, that eternal life is a person. And because it's a person, it's a relationship. A relationship with Christ in a relationship with others. 
So first, relationship with Christ. This passage is all about relationship. It introduces a letter that's all about relationship. And in these first three verses, we're introduced to three kinds of relationship. And all three appear in verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. There's the first kind of relationship. John says, fellowship with us. This is relationship between people. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son. Here's the second relationship, right? Relationship between God and his people. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there's the third kind of relationship. That's relationship between the Father and his Son and the Holy Spirit, the relationship within the Trinity, within the Godhead. And one of these relationships is the cause of the other two. It's the relationship within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the foundation of the other two relationships, which is the relationship between God and his people and the relationship between people. So foundational that the relationship within the Godhead appears in all three verses. Verse one, that which was from the beginning. John opens his letter almost identical to how he opens his gospel. When he says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, meaning before the world was ever created, in eternity past, the word, Jesus Christ, the word of life was with the Father. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in this perfect harmonious relationship loving one another, honoring one another, just absolutely perfect. And then verse two, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. And then verse three, the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Right? So the Father was with the Son from eternity past. This relationship has existed in eternity, a beautiful, perfect, harmonious relationship within the Godhead within the Trinity. And this explains Genesis 1 and 2. Right? Why did God in Genesis 1 and 2 create the world? Why did he create people? You could say, well, he was lonely. Maybe his relationship with his son was pretty dysfunctional, right? Or he wasn't quite getting the relationship with the spirit that he wanted, so he said, I'm gonna create new relationships because I gotta find a relationship to fill me. Of course not. Right? God was absolutely, completely satisfied, full of joy in the community of the Trinity. And it's out of that joy that his desire was to multiply that joy, to multiply what was experienced within the, within the Trinity. So he created the world and he created people to enjoy relationship with him, enjoy relationship with each other, share the joy, multiply it. But then we hit Genesis 3. Sin enters the world, and two of those three relationships fracture. Relationship between God and his people fractured, and the relationship between the first people, our first parents, Adam and Eve, fractured. 
The relationship within the Trinity didn't fracture, can't fracture, perfectly harmonious. And that's why there was hope that the other two relationships could be restored. Just as the foundation of God's relationship within the Godhead was the foundation of creation, now that would be the same foundation for recreation, for healing these other relationships that had been fractured. What God created, he would recreate by sending his son into the world and putting on flesh. How did he do it? Verse one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse two, the life was made manifest or revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest or revealed to us. Why does John put so much emphasis on the fact that he heard, saw, and touched Jesus? It's because relationship with God is not abstract or intangible. And yet that's how most of the major world religions and most of spirituality speaks of a relationship with God. It's very abstract, it's very intangible. Relationship with God is based on a feeling or it only exists in this spiritual immaterial world. And so you and I are stuck in this physical material world and somehow we've gotta escape and get to the real immaterial spiritual place and. It's very abstract, very intangible. John says, no, it's not abstract. It's not intangible. I touched God in the flesh. I heard him speak to me. I saw him. I saw God in the flesh with my very eyes. Nothing abstract or intangible about that. And so I'm proclaiming it now to you so that you too can have relationship, fellowship with God that is real. And not just based on a feeling or based on some immaterial abstract philosophy. Eternal life is not an impersonal quality of life, nor is it a place, it is a person. And therefore it is a relationship. In his gospel, John describes, defines eternal life this way. In John 17, three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John says eternal life is not primarily a place or even necessarily a quality of life. It is primarily a relationship with Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard someone Maybe you've said it or you've heard someone say, after someone dies, at least they're in a better place. It's a very common phrase. And what is meant by that phrase is, at least this person is no longer suffering in this world or in their body that was racked by cancer. They're They're in heaven, they're in a better place. It's not wrong, but it places the emphasis on place and not relationship. And eternal life is primarily about relationship. Yes, it does involve place, new heavens, new earth, but it's primarily about 
relationship with Jesus Christ, and it begins the moment you trust Christ for the first time. This centrality of relationship with Christ is so incredibly important in our current day and age because there are so many current events that have transpired over the last year, several years, that have created division, polarization, people having to pick sides, including the church. There are so many dangerous rabbit trails that you can go down that you never come back from. Rabbit trails aren't bad. Rabbit trails are just bad when they never return. Now, what am I saying as, as it applies to current events? I'm not saying that the church needs to stick its head in the sand and just ignore what's happening in the culture. No, actually, just the opposite. Let me explain it this way. Imagine you're on a long 10-hour car ride down an interstate. Okay, long day trip. And if you've been on an interstate, you know what every so often what happens along interstates, there's a rest area, right? And it's at the rest area that you get to either eat lunch or go to the bathroom or get out, stretch your legs. What's the purpose of the rest area? The purpose of the rest area is to get you back on the interstate with greater focus and with greater energy. Current events, things happening in our culture are like the rest area. The interstate is relationship with Jesus Christ. The interstate is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that we don't not engage current events. We don't just stick our head in the sand and say, ah, we're not gonna care about that. We're gonna pretend like nothing's happening. No, we engage but we engage with them in a way that leads us back to Jesus Christ and back to the gospel with greater clarity, greater focus, and greater energy. Imagine if, you know, using the rest area example, you, you stopped at a rest area and you went, wow, this is a, just a great rest area. I mean, look at what Georgia has done with this building and look at these picnic tables, they're clean, the bathrooms are clean, look at the azaleas popping, wow, this is an amazing place. We can do a lot here, and then you, you say, you know what, we're gonna clear some woods in the back, we're gonna put a shack up, you know, and then we're gonna, oh wow, this is so nice, we're gonna clear some, some land behind the shack, and before long, you forget that you were on the interstate. And you can't even find your way back. You engage current events, but you engage them in such a way that it causes you to return or to move towards Jesus Christ with greater clarity, greater focus, greater energy. The danger is that a current issue can become a rabbit trail that goes on and on and before long, you're so far away from the gospel and so far away from Jesus Christ. That's the danger of it. That's why the centrality of relationship with Jesus Christ the gospel is so important. So what is eternal life? First, relationship with Christ. Second, relationship with others. So we arrive at this third relationship. We've looked at the relationship within the Godhead that is the cause of the others. We've looked at the relationship between God and his people, restored through the person and work of Christ. And now that gives way to the third 
kind of relationship, which is our interpersonal relationships. And this is what John speaks of in verse 3. When he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that, that means here, here is the reason that John is proclaiming Christ. So that you too may have fellowship with us. John says we proclaim Christ so that you can have relationship with us and with each other. Now, what does this word fellowship mean? It appears two times in verse three. The word fellowship in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, is koinonia. And it means sharing or participation. Sharing or participation. Sharing in one another's lives, participating in one another's lives. It's used in Acts chapter two to describe the early church. And it's there that it's used in two ways that helps us arrive at a working definition of fellowship. Acts chapter two, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. There's the word, koinonia. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the fellowship. This is the, the sharing life with one another, participating in one another's lives. But then down to Acts chapter two, verse 44, we read this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That word common is the word koinos. It's the adjective form of koinonia, which is the noun. So if we pull this together, we arrive at a working definition of fellowship. And that is this. Fellowship is the gathering, right? The participating in one another's lives, the sharing in one another's lives, right? Fellowship is gathering around what we hold in common. And what John says is what we hold in common is Christ. So fellowship is the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, connecting with the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and another person. It's two people sharing the same Spirit, sharing the same Christ. That's what fellowship is. So if Christ is the means to true fellowship, then what is the threat to true fellowship? What's the threat to true fellowship? It's something or someone other than Christ that becomes what we hold in common. And the reason that's a threat is because when you hold something or someone else in common in your relationship or in your community, some people hold that in common and gather. Others don't hold that in common and don't gather. It fractures relationships. It fractures communities. And over the past year, now this has been true for history, but it's been highlighted over the past year, we have some very real threats to true fellowship. I'll give you a few. Mask or no mask. Now it's becoming vaccine or no vaccine. Restart or shut down? Conservative or liberal? 
when these things get in the middle and they become the common, this is where fracture begins and division begins. Now, you can look at this two ways. You can say, look at what the pandemic has caused. Look at all the division and the fracture that the pandemic has caused. Or you can say, look at what the pandemic has shown in the human heart. Look at what the pandemic has revealed in the human heart. The human heart has caused fracture and division. Because in the human heart is this great propensity to put something or someone in the place of commonness where Jesus Christ is to be. Now, you can say, well, if we've put something else in the middle, then we just need to work through it and come up with a compromise. Well, that doesn't work. What works is, and what should happen is, Jesus Christ becomes the, the center and we stare at him instead of staring at our uncommonness. Let me apply this in two areas of relationship. Okay, marriage and the church. Let's start with the fellowship of marriage. Duke University professor Stanley Auris uh, makes this very provocative statement about marriage. Listen to this. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Thus why this is a provocative statement. Here's what he means. He means you never find the perfectly compatible person. That person doesn't exist. And by perfectly compatible, he means that you hold everything in common. That's a myth. And all you have to do is look at some of the marriages that are in your orbit, maybe even your own marriage. The wife is elegant, quiet, contemplative, while the husband is boisterous, rowdy, funny, maybe borderline obnoxious. The husband loves to go on two-week-long backpacking trips in the mountains with just his tent on his back and a can of ramen noodles. He's a mountain man. The wife's idea of camping is staying in the Holiday Inn, and that's even a step down. Or the wife's the ultimate risk-taker, just adventurous. The husband does everything possible to avoid risk. Your marriage is not founded on commonness. It's founded on uncommon commonness, which means there's all kinds of uncommonness 
between husband and wife, but the commonness of Jesus Christ. When you're focused on Christ is what will take your marriage to new levels of tenderness and strength and joy. So the practical application is this. Quit looking at your uncommonness and questioning whether you married the right person. And start staring at your commonness, which is Jesus Christ. And watch your marriage start to transform. Fellowship of marriage. Second area of relationship. The fellowship of the church. Fellowship of the church. I have watched over the past year numerous churches in this pandemic fall into fracture and division. Churches that had a ton of uncommonness that they used to rejoice around their uncommonness gathered around Christ as the common center. But now their uncommonness has become center and caused fracture and division. So different skin color, different political views, different socioeconomic status, different levels of education that used to highlight their commonness around Jesus now highlight their division. The church is a gathering of people who apart from Christ would probably never gather together. That's the sign of a healthy church. Back in 1955, Charlie Franks and his wife adopted this young Asian elephant that was five years old. And they, they trained her, they raised her up. It, it became somewhat famous. They, they, he would take this elephant on parades and he would go on to TV shows and talk shows. It was just a, it was a somewhat very well-known popular elephant and his trainer, Charlie. Well, Charlie got to retirement age. So he had to figure out what to do with Nita, this elephant that he had raised and trained for so many years. He didn't want to sell her to the circus because he didn't know how the circus would treat her. So he donated this elephant to the San Diego Wildlife Animal Park in 1974. And for the next 15 years, never saw Nita, never saw the elephant. But after 15 years, he decided he wanted a reunion. He wanted to go see her again. And of course, because there was some fame around this elephant and the trainer, uh, it was a big deal when he went back to the San Diego Wildlife Animal Park and and he arrived, and he wondered, what, is she going to recognize my voice? You know, when I called to her, like I did for so many years. And so the day came, and he got out there, and, you know, it was a good distance away, and he called her name. And this elephant immediately turned around and began immediately sauntering towards him, got up to him, raised her trunk in just this, you know, euphoria of joy, and their relationship was, you know, immediately restored. 15 years later. That's a picture of the work of Christ. He calls. He calls people from all walks of life who have been separated from him by various pits of sin and despair. We respond to the call through faith and repentance and joyfully gather around Christ. Our relationship restored with him, standing shoulder to shoulder with people who we are very different from. 
Lots of uncommonness. But we gather around our commonness. We do it now by faith. But one day, we're going to do it by sight. One day, Jesus is going to return, and he is going to call his church. He's going to call his people. And they're going to gather around him. And we're going to gather with people, shoulder to shoulder, we're very different from. All nations, all tongues, all tribes. With Jesus at the center. And that will go on for eternity. And we will live in relationship with Christ, with God the Father, with the Godhead. We'll live in relationship with each other. But in relationships and communities that can never be fractured again. Because it won't be possible to put something other than Christ in the center once he returns. We do it now and we repent of it. And that's how relationships are healed. But the day's coming when we're going to do that for eternity. And so we practice now what we're going to do for eternity. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking of eternal life as just primarily a place or maybe some impersonal quality of life. Forgive us for forgetting and acting and behaving as though eternal life is not a relationship, and that is exactly what it is. It's a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we know that our relationship with you healed by the work of your son, Jesus, is the, is the means towards relationships with others that are full and beautiful, not perfect, but full of repentance and faith. And Father, we thank you that you give us a meal like the Lord's Supper that is tangible, that we can taste and, and touch. It reminds us that our relationship with you is real. And Father, as we eat and drink, would you use this time by your spirit to heal us, to heal our relationship with you that's fractured by sin, to heal our relationship with our spouse, to heal our relationship with our kids, our families, our communities, our small group, our Bible study. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a great work now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.